Let's take God's word and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Last Sunday, I gave you five reasons why this chapter ought to be the highlight of our week. Here they are, working backwards through the text. Five reasons why Romans chapter 11 ought to be the highlight of our week. Number one, it tells us who God is. We see that primarily in verses 33 through 36. Secondly, it tells us what God is doing. We see that primarily in verses 30 through 32. Number three, it tells us what, that God always keeps his promise. Verses 25 through 29. Number four, it tells us that a vital relationship with God is absolutely necessary. Verses 11 through 24. And fifthly and finally, it tells us that our only hope rests in God's sovereign grace. Verses 1 through 10. And so I invite you now to follow along as I read those verses for us. Again, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, where Paul emphasizes this fact. Our only hope rests in God's sovereign grace. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. I want to begin with a stanza from a well-known song, a very well-known hymn. Here it is, Sovereign Grace or Sin Abounding. Ransom souls the tidings swell. Tis a deep that knows no sounding. Who its breadth or length can tell on its glories, on its glories, let my soul forever dwell. That's our objective this morning. Very simple. We want to see something of the glories of God's sovereign grace. Glories, riches, if you like, 
as revealed in these 10 verses. Now, before we get to the detail, before we get to the nitty gritty, I want to make three remarks, observations concerning these verses, this text. Observation number one is this. It is unusual, yet beneficial. It is an unusual text, but a beneficial text. What Paul says in these verses, it's quite unique. You'll never hear anything like this on the evening news. Never. I guarantee it. You will never, ever hear anything like this on a morning talk show. You will never hear anything like this in a presidential debate. Oh, I know that's shocking, but you won't. You will never hear anything that even closely approximates what Paul says in these verses in a presidential debate. You won't hear it in the call-in, the, the multitude of call-in radio shows that are broadcast day after day after day. And sadly, uh, we will rarely, rarely, if ever, uh, hear anything like this in 99% or read anything like this in 99% of the Christian literature that is out there in our day. There will be very few conferences this year that will deal with the subject matter Paul deals with in these verses. It's unusual, yet it is beneficial, extremely beneficial. Why? In a sentence, here's why. Paul establishes the nature of grace. And in so doing, he shows us the riches of the gospel. That's it. Here, Paul establishes the nature of grace. The word grace is used casually, and it is used flippantly in our day. I'm not trying to pick a battle, but here it is. Very few people actually have a clue as to what it means. It is used so casually, carelessly, and flippantly. But here Paul defines for us and establishes for us the very nature, the very essence of grace. And notice the relationship. In so doing, he shows us the riches of the gospel. The two are inseparable. A proper biblical understanding of the grace of God will lead to a proper biblical understanding of the gospel. Here's a second remark I want to make concerning this text. It is controversial, yet pastoral. Controversial. Why? Well, look no further than what Paul says at the end of verse 5. Chosen by grace. You mean to tell me God chooses people? God chooses people to be saved. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect, the chosen. You're telling me again God elects people. It gets worse. Look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 7. But the rest were hardened. That's a passive, that's a passive voice. They were hardened. It begs the question, hardened by whom, verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. So you're telling me, let me get this straight. You're telling me God chooses certain people to be saved, and you're telling me that God actually hardens people. Excuse, excuse me, am I understanding you right? 
That's not the way I've understood things up to this point. Here, here how, here's how I have sort of understood things up to this point. God has made salvation possible for all. Now he is sitting back hoping that someone will choose him. How do I reconcile that thinking with what Paul so clearly affirms in these verses? Ooh, that is, that's a little controversial. But it is extremely pastoral. Why? What Paul says in these verses makes much of God. That's what we need above anything else in our day. We need to make much of God. What Paul says in these verses cultivates a God-centered, not a man-centered, a God-centered worldview. What Paul says in these verses keeps us in our place. What Paul says in these verses imparts security. Unshakable assurance to the believer. What Paul says in these verses creates a sense of wonder. It leads to worship. And why? Because it accentuates, it magnifies the true nature of saving grace. It is controversial, but it is equally pastoral. Third observation I want to make is this. This text is theological. Very theological, yet it is practical. Theological, yet practical. Ever since chapter 9, verse 1, Paul has been dealing with the nation of Israel. His argument is rooted in ancient history. We're going back 2,000 years to ancient history. His argument is saturated with Old Testament quotations, citations. And his argument is constructed on the twin pillars of fact and logic. He is extremely theological. And we could be tempted to think to ourselves, though we might never, not, we might never utter this in the hearing of others, we could very well be tempted to think to ourselves, look, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less what happened to the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago. I couldn't care less when it comes to this tightly woven theological argument that Paul is making in these three chapters. I just want something that will get me through the week. My point is this. This will get you through the week. This is exactly what you need. You need a tightly woven theological argument. You need something robust. We need something meaty that we can get our teeth on. We need something that will overwhelm our minds and our hearts and get us off the computer, get us off of Facebook, get us off of the trivial, get us off the cares of the world, and focus our attention somewhere that is of, of extreme magnitude and significance and importance. This is exactly what we need. It is extremely practical in dealing with the nation of Israel. Paul actually addresses, speaks to the individual. Oh, there are so many individuals that need to be brought to this text. The first 10 verses of Romans 11. Let me introduce you to a few. The person who says God is love, that means he's going to save everyone. It needs to be introduced to this text. The individual who says salvation depends on me, at least in part, needs to be brought to this text. The person who says, as long as I'm sincere, God will save me, needs to be introduced to this text. The person who says, God has done all he can, now it's up to me to choose him, 
needs a, an encounter with this text. One more individual. The person who says, I wonder if I've done enough to be saved. Uh, we need to bring that person to this text. It is theological, tightly woven, based in ancient history, based on fact and logic, saturated with the Old Testament. But there is a purpose in it all that in the depths of this theology we find exactly, precisely what our soul needs. Three introductory comments. Yes, it's unusual, but beneficial. It's controversial, but it is pastoral. It's theological, but it is practical. Now we get to the details. I can move quickly through the first six verses because that's where we were last Sunday. But you'll see an outline right there in your sermon notes. Just giving us the thought flow. How Paul is thinking so that we can follow his logic in these opening verses, these 10 verses of the chapter. And basically, just quickly, he begins with what? A question. Right there at the outset of verse 1. I ask, note the word, then. I ask, therefore, has God rejected his people? The word then, therefore, forces us to do what? Go back into the preceding chapter. What has he just said at the end of chapter 10? Of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so this has been God's attitude, his posture to the nation of Israel throughout its history. He has held out his hands to them. He has sent prophet after prophet calling them back to him. What has been their response? Disobedience and stubbornness. They are a disobedient and contrary people. As a nation, ethnically speaking, they have rejected God. It leads to an obvious question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Them. In other words, has he utterly, totally, completely abandoned them? The nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, has he completely turned his back and has nothing to do with them? That is the question. Paul proceeds to give his answer. What is it? By no means. For, here's why my answer is negative. For, and he gets very personal. Look at me. Threefold description. I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so his point is simply what? Well, yes, Israel as a nation has rejected God. But God hasn't totally abandoned, rejected, turned his back on the nation of Israel. I'm living proof. I'm a Jew. I'm no anti-Semitic, is what Paul is saying. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Jew. So to conclude that because the nation has rejected God, God has totally rejected the nation, well, no, that just doesn't make any sense because I stand before you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one whom God foreknew, one whom God called, one whom God brought to himself. It leads to evidence, historical evidence, to buttress his argument. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, do you not know? He's being rather nice there. What he's really saying is this. Look, this is kindergarten. You should know this. This is just, this is just, this is simple Simon. This is one plus one equals two. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? 
How he appeals to God against Israel. And so what did Elijah say back in the days of Ahab and Jezebel? The pits. I mean, Israel as a nation, they had reached, they had hit rock bottom. Baal worship, just prevalent. And as far as Elijah was concerned, everyone, the nation in totality, had turned its back on God. Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. What is God's response as recorded back in 1 Kings? What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men. Note the emphasis there. He does not say, look, there are 7,000 men who have chosen me. He does not say, look, there are 7,000 men who are particularly humble and bright and have figured this out and they have not bowed the knee to Baal. What does he say? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That is the evidence. That there is historical evidence that God had not rejected, he has not rejected the nation in totality. To conclude, simply because the nation had rejected him, that he had totally abandoned the nation, no. Look at it historically. There has always been a remnant. There has always been a spiritual Israel within ethnic Israel. He then draws his conclusion in verse 5. So too, at the present time, his time, Paul's days, there is a, a remnant. This is the way it has always been. And then he adds that phrase right at the end of the verse 5. Chosen, elected by grace. So you have it there. Question, answer, evidence, conclusion. Verse 6 is almost parenthetical. What he is doing there is he's elaborating on that last phrase at the end of verse 5. He's explaining what he means by that, chosen by grace. Here's what I mean. If it is by grace, and so if this remnant has always been saved and preserved by grace, I want you to get this, and he makes this contrast between divine activity on the one hand and human activity on the other hand. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. More on that later. It is a parenthetical comment explaining the last phrase in verse 5, chosen by grace. Picking up his thought flow in verse 7, what does he then do? He is building, question, answer, evidence, conclusion. Look at the question at the outset of verse 7. What then? He now draws the implications from his conclusion. Implications. There are three. Implication number one, Israel, verse 7, failed to obtain what it was seeking. What, here he is speaking of the nation ethnically in its totality as a whole. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? He's already told us, turn back to chapter 10, verse 3. He writes, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
And so Israel was seeking a right standing in God's sight. Israel, yes, was concerned about a position of righteousness in God's sight, acceptance in God's sight, but they made a gross error. They made a horrendous mistake. They sought to establish their own righteousness. They were convinced collectively that what God wanted of them was, yes, conformity to the law, and through their own conformity to the law, they could produce that righteousness which would make them accepted in God's sight. In so doing, they refused to do what? As Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 10, they refused to submit themselves to God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? He tells us in the fourth verse, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes, Christ has paid the penalty of the law. Christ has fulfilled the duty of the law. Christ is the end, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness. This is the righteousness by which we must stand in God's sight. And it is for all who believe. But Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel tripped over the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they want nothing to do with it. Why? Because they were determined to establish their own righteousness. Why? Because they misunderstood exactly what it was God required of them. And they minimized the gravity of their own depravity. And so that is the first implication that Paul draws, returning back to chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Implication number one. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Implication number two, still in verse seven, the elect obtained it. Who are the elect? He's already defined the elect back in verse five. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He has already affirmed this in very clear terms. Turn all the way back to chapter nine. When this whole section, Paul embarks on this entire section in the ninth chapter. And look with me at what he says in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel, in other words, ethnic Israel, all those who are physical descendants of Jacob, Israel, not all who are descended from Israel, are actually Israel, is what he says there. There is a spiritual Israel within ethnic Israel. Verse 7, he elaborates. He basically states it in a different way. And not all are children of Abraham. Not all are his, not all are, are his spiritual descendants because they are simply his offspring, his physical descendants. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh. It is not ethnic Israel. It is not, not the physical descendants of Jacob who are the children of God. Can he be even plainer? But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. There has always been a spiritual Israel within ethnic Israel. There has always been a remnant. From Sinai to the days of the Apostle Paul to the present within ethnic Israel. 
That is the second implication. The elect, those chosen by grace, obtained it. That by sovereign grace, God foreknew them. You go in your mind's eye back to chapter 8. He foreknew them, chose them before the foundation of the world. He predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of his son. In time, he called them powerfully, sovereignly by the spirit of God. Having called them, he justified them. Yes, they believed in Christ because God had called them. They believed, therefore, they were made one with Christ, justified in the sight of God. And God will glorify them. That is the second implication, the elect obtained it. Let me just go off on a tangent here as I pause at my watch. For some of you, some of you, maybe very few of you, maybe a lot of you, but here we go couple things. Number one, again, I think I made reference to this a couple months ago. Here is the answer then to that question, which really isn't a question. Has the church replaced Israel? Right? I get accused of that all the time. Oh, you think the church replaced Israel? No, I do not think the church replaced Israel because I don't think Israel was ever anything to be replaced. There was a remnant within Israel The church does not replace Israel. The church is the continuation of the remnant. There is only one people of God. There is one household of faith. And in glory, we're all going to be singing the same song. It's the song of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we're all going to be there for one reason. Because we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we're going to give God the glory collectively. And so this argument, you'll hear it a lot. I guess I'm raising this because I, I, got, it was, I was targeted by this, this accusation again just, just recently. Oh, you think the church replaced Israel? Well, actually, no, I don't. And, and, and the question, did the church replace Israel? I don't even acknowledge it as a question. Because Israel, salvifically, were never the people of God. It was the remnant within the nation of Israel, a remnant that continues now in the church. A second comment I think is worth worth making is this. Here we go. This is the difference between Presbyterian covenant theology and Baptist covenant theology. I just lost two-thirds of you. (laughs) But here we go anyway. Here is the difference, and I think this is helpful. Like, this is helpful because every so often I get an email from someone, hey, I'm reading this book, or can you give me some advice on this book, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the difference between Presbyterian covenant theology and Baptist covenant theology. There is such a thing. Many people don't even acknowledge it, but there is. It goes all the way back to the 17th century, incidentally. In Presbyterian covenant theology, Israel and church stand in relation, equivalency. In Baptist covenant theology, they do not. The remnant and the church stand in equivalency. Now, I could wink at one or two of you, but I will restrain myself. That, that is pivotal for our understanding, right, of Baptist, Baptistic covenant theology as opposed to Presbyterian covenant theology because the implications then for the church, the church's relationship with the world, the whole issue of baptism, all of these things come into play and they rest on that, that foundation. And I think this is an important text to understand this. As a matter of fact, all of chapters 9, 10, and 11, it is the remnant, it is the remnant, it is the remnant. There has always been a people of God chosen by grace. 
one people. In the Old Testament, now the church, since, since the baptism of the Spirit of God, and there is continuation. And that is the second implication. The elect obtained it. They obtained it by sovereign grace. The third implication is what? Right there in verse 7. I'm obviously not making this up. What does he say? The rest were, the rest were hardened. So implication number one, Israel as a nation ethnically failed to obtain what it was seeking because it was seeking the wrong thing, trying to establish their own righteousness. The elect obtained it. They were chosen by grace. They obtained it. Here's the third implication. The rest, that is the rest of the nation, ethnically speaking, they were hardened. Now, what does that mean, they were hardened? Look at verse 8, as it is written. Paul is very helpful here. He expands on what that means in verses 8, 9, and 10. In verse 8, he quotes from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29. God gave them a spirit of stupor, insensitivity, insensibility. Eyes that would not see, that's blindness. Ears that would not hear, that's deafness. Down to this very day. Even David, and now he quotes from Psalm 69, says... Let their table, Calvin says, table, all that is good in life, let it become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes, again, this idea of blindness, darkness, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Bondage, isn't it? Here is, in one statement, the essence of this hardness. A hard heart is insensible, past feeling. And a hard heart is inflexible, past bending. Now, I can't leave it at that, can I? It raises several questions. I've put these in the sermon notes. Let me try to answer them now for you. We went down this road in chapter 9, around verse 18. So much of what I'm going to say, you've already heard, but it is worth hearing again and working through this. Question number one, when did this happen? When were the rest hardened? When did this happen? The text gives us an answer. In verse 8, he quotes from whom? Deuteronomy, that's Moses. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Verse 9, he quotes from whom? David. So look at them historically, chronologically. You begin with Moses, you move to David, you move to Isaiah, and then you come to Paul himself. This is a hardness. When did it happen? It has happened throughout the history of the nation of Israel. This has always been true of the nation. You go back and you read that quotation in Deuteronomy 29 through the lips of Moses before the children of Israel even entered the promised land. We see this hardness. So when did this happen? It happened throughout their history. Second question is this. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Now here it's important to, to grasp that in the Bible there are three kinds of hardness. There is firstly a natural hardness. This is an inbred disease of the soul. 
We have a description of it in living color back in chapter 3. You have a very concise description of it, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. The Apostle Paul in both places, many other places, actually we declared it this morning in the context of Titus 3, didn't we? That because of sin, there is a natural inbred blindness, deafness, hardness of heart, and insensibility to divine truth. No one seeks for God. Together they have become useless. They've all turned aside away from God. No fear of God before their eyes. So this is an inbred, innate condition of the soul, a consequence of the fall. Every individual who enters the human race, human race, this world, is born in this sinful condition. That is natural hardness. There is secondly, however, in the Bible, actual hardness. What is that? An increase of natural hardness by every act of sin and refusal of grace. Again, an increase of natural hardness by every act of sin and refusal of grace. That as those who are already hardened because of their sin are exposed to the truth, If God's grace does not become operative in them, and if they refuse that grace, and if they continue in the pathway of sin, the inbred hardness actually increases. This actual hardness. There is thirdly in Scripture, judicial hardness, an act of God. Where God says, enough. And we read in many, many instances, he hardens the heart. It is the third which is in view in our text. You focus on that word as David expresses it, verse 9, toward the end of the verse, a retribution. This is a judicial hardness. It is an act of An act of God. So we know when it has happened. It's happened throughout their history. We know why it has happened. It has happened because of their own sin. It has happened because of their own rebellion. Paul made that clear in chapter 10. Again, referring to verse 21 of chapter 10. All day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so God's hardening of them was an act of judgment. Retribution. How? Does this happen? How did it happen in the case of Israel? How does it happen today? How did it happen, thinking back, in the instance of Pharaoh? As Paul explains it in chapter 9. How does this hardening actually occur? And here is where we must tread lightly and softly. And make sure our T's are crossed and our I's are dotted. There's no room for mistake here. Or we can end up with all sorts of problems and implications and ramifications which are actually contrary to Scripture. Please, the starting point is this. How does God judicially harden people? Please, this is the starting point. God does not infuse hardness like He infuses mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will harden whom I harden. He does not do both in the same manner. 
When it comes to mercy, he is the active, efficient cause, is he not? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And when he has mercy on an individual by his own sovereign will, he sends forth the Spirit of God. There is a new birth. That individual believes and repents of their sin and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit of God who gives what? Eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to receive. And that is a result of God's activity. He is the efficient cause of mercy. He is not the efficient cause of hardness. If God were the efficient cause of hardness, if he infused hardness, as he infuses mercy, then people would sin of necessity, wouldn't they? And who would ultimately be responsible for their sin and for their evil? God would. If that is our conclusion, then we've entered into the realm of contradiction and are actually arguing, trying to affirm something contrary to Scripture. We do not go down that road. God does not infuse hardness as He infuses mercy. Here is what He does. He hardens the heart. How? Simply by removing His restraining grace. That's all He is doing. He hardened Pharaoh. How? Not by making Pharaoh do something he didn't want to do. Not by stopping Pharaoh from doing something he wanted to do. How did God harden Pharaoh? By removing in ever greater measure his restraining grace so that Pharaoh had the complete freedom, all restraints gone, to do whatever was in his heart to do. And so the analogy, I think the example I gave a couple months ago is of the greyhound. It's a good one. Never forget it. The greyhound, greyhound race. There you have six or seven of them lined up in their boxes, crates, cages. I don't know what they're called. There they are, start of the race. The rabbit, the mechanical rabbit is there on the inside track, right? What do the greyhounds want? What are they itching to get after? The rabbit. It's what they want. It's what they're focused on. They're probably already yelping and barking, and and they're looking at that rabbit. What happens? The doors are lifted, and then what do they do? They chase after the rabbit. Has something caused them to chase the rabbit? Has all of a sudden something changed in them, whereby something is now forcing them, get after that rabbit? No, what are they doing? They simply now have the liberty to do what they always wanted to do. That is how God hardens. That's it, folks. That is how he hardens. It is simply the removal of his restraining grace. It's the deadening of the conscience. It's the prevalence of sin in society around us, whereby we begin to think, oh, it's no big deal. Right? It's the collapse of government. It's the collapse of social institutions. It's the collapse of family. You can go on and on and on and on. All these things. Our society is inundated by manifestations of God's common grace. It's everywhere if we care to look. And how does God harden? He told us this. Paul told us this back in chapter 1. By simply giving people over. Three times in Romans 1. He gave them over. They wanted to do that. He gave them over. They wanted to do that. He gave them over. It's the same thing as hardening. He gives them up to do what resides in the heart 
to do. That was the case with Pharaoh. That was the case with the rest. But the rest were hardened. God hardened them. Not in the same sense in which he infuses mercy. But by a progressive withdrawal of his common restraining grace. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. The world fell into sin. It's referring to the garden. The world fell into sin. But God put a limit. God put a restraint upon it. This world would be complete chaos and hell. If he did not do so. Let me repeat that. The world fell into sin. But God has put a limit. A restraint upon it. The world would be complete chaos and hell. If he did not do so. Again you want to enter into the realm of theodicy. Here we're really off on a tangent now. The question is often levied at Christians. If God is so good. Then why is there evil in the world? The question makes absolutely no sense. The question doesn't exist. It doesn't really exist. Given that people are so evil, why is there any good in the world? That's the question. And the answer is God's common grace, his love, his benevolence. He has been manifesting it ever since the fall by restraining our sinfulness. And when he hardens, all he does is he removes that restraint. The world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint upon it. This world would be complete chaos and hell if he did not do so. But the moment God draws back his restraining influence, there is hardening. When he hardens, God simply leaves people to themselves. That's it. When he hardens, God simply leaves people to himself. I hope that strikes you as horrific. That is completely horrific. That is shocking on so many levels. I I hope there is at least an inkling of dread in your heart right now. Something. Right? Dread and fear and awe of this God, this King of Kings, who controls all things, and who for generations, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, his puny creatures, having rebelled against him, having willfully rejected him, having run headlong in rebellion against him, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, what has he done? He has showered his common grace upon us. Can you imagine what this world would be like apart from God's common grace? The answer, it's a word, four letters. It's hell. It's all hell is. Hell will simply be the final removal of God's restraining grace and God simply giving people what they actually want. That is it. That will be hell. It will be the complete final judicial removal 
of God's common love, his common grace. Do you understand? You put all of that in the context of what Paul affirms back in Romans 2. That God's patience toward us. His kindness toward us. His long suffering toward us. He says it's all streamlined if we would just take a look. If we would just take stock. If we would just look at things historically and even look at our world now and our lives. If we would just behold his kindness for what it is in lavishing his common grace upon us. All of these things are designed to lead us to what? Repentance, says Paul in Romans 2. Oh, if you are an unbeliever, my friend. Yes, your heart hardened in sin. Do not harden it even further. If the Spirit of God is working in your life at this very moment, my friend, oh, please understand. Understand everything that has transpired in your life. Understand. I mean, if this, hope, this makes you feel really special. Understand human history in its entirety as bringing you to this moment. So that you might behold the patience of God with you in bearing with you until this moment. The kindness of God in putting up with you until this moment. The long-suffering of God for enduring what He has endured from you to this moment. And understand it is designed to humble you. And understand it is designed to bring you to repentance. And repenting before this holy God, understand, oh, we expressed it earlier, did we not, that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this text. Yes, I mean, we can wrestle with the ins and outs, the dynamics and the, and the intricacies of what it means to harden the heart. Oh, but this text, yes, unusual but beneficial. Controversial yet pastoral, theological yet practical, how so? Because in this text, its breadth and its depth, Paul gives us a beautiful picture of the grace of God. There it is. The verse leaps off the page at us, verse 6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Oh, the beauties, the riches of grace. Four points as I conclude quickly. The text shows us that grace is free or else it isn't grace. Grace is free or else it isn't grace. Verse 6, he contrasts human work, human activity, works, and divine work, divine activity, Grace. We bring nothing and we contribute nothing to our salvation. Grace is completely free or else it isn't grace. Second point is this. Grace is causal. Causal. Or else it isn't grace. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Why did they obtain it? They obtained it because they were elect. Why did I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ because God chose me before the foundation of the world. I did. God did not choose me because I believed. I believed because God, praise God, chose me. Oh, grace is causal. Faith and repentance. This is often how it's presented today and it is misleading. 
How it is often represented today, the gospel is this. Faith and repentance will trigger God's grace. No, it will not. God's grace triggers faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are not the cause of God's grace. God's grace is the cause of faith and repentance. The third important point is this. Grace is sovereign or else it isn't grace. Verse 5, so too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. He echoes that sentiment which he declared back in chapter 9. God has mercy on whomever he wills. Christian, God doesn't say he loves you because you are wonderful or adorable or special. God says he loves you because he loves you. Ralph Venning sums it up wonderfully. There is no reason to be given for grace. Oh, did you hear that? You need to hear that. You must grasp that. There is no reason to be given for grace. But grace. But grace. Grace is sovereign. Or else it isn't grace. Fourth point is this. Grace is eternal. Or else it isn't grace. The recipients of God's grace, verse 2, are those whom God foreknew before the foundation of the world. One preacher declares, oh, it is such good news. Such good news to know that the root of our salvation goes down forever and ever into eternal grace. And never gets to a point where it is contingent or dependent upon us. Sovereign grace or sin abounding. Ransom souls the tidings swell. Tis a deep that knows no sounding. Who its breadth or length can tell. On its glories. On its glories. Let my soul forever dwell. Our Father. We make that our earnest prayer this day. We praise you for your word. Praise you for what you have revealed in it concerning yourself, your ways with men. Praise you for what you have revealed in it concerning the riches of your grace. And thank you for your grace directed towards sinners such as us. And we pray, our Father, that we might take to heart this text this day and the truths contained in it. We pray that our hearts might be warmed by the fire of your eternal love for your people. We ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.